Ready? Mm -hmm. Three, two, one. Don't smirk, John Ramsey. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to Boxes and Lions. Welcome to Boxes and Lions. This is our traditional bad Irish accent. It's not hey, a bad a Irish accent. I've been working on it. It's actually getting better and better all the time, I think. It is you who say so. We have a very special guest today, and John Ramsey finally brought on a guest, so I'm going to actually let him introduce his own guest. Oh, Over to you, John. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you. We have Elise Walter, who is extraordinarily distinguished and accomplished and I won't so just uh, so she is from 2008 2013 was a commissioner uh, and chairman of the US SEC chairman during the latter part of that period um, is currently on the board of governors of FINRA um, previously has been a senior executive at FINRA general counsel with commodity futures trading commission a former deputy director of the SEC is um, previously very until very recently a director of the SASB or sustainability accounting standards board a director of the Occidental Petroleum Corporation a director of the National Women's Law Center um, and a vice chairman of the SEC investor advisory committee Jeez, Louise. And she's my friend, too. So you, I, you are obligated to be completely <laughs> deferential and respectful to me. Through... No, don't listen to him. Be honest. Yeah, yeah you are. We Welcome are, aboard. We're the opposites of each other because our birthdays are exactly six months apart. That's really? true. That's true. But we're, we're not opposite in terms of our humanity, um, our sense of uh, decency, um, our sense of humor. We share all the best traits. Oh Lord! <laughs> <laughs> and and I guess before we, before we and very, you're very welcome, Elise. One thing John and I have been saying over the past couple of weeks as we do these podcasts, uh, we like to have a lot of fun on these podcasts and joke around. And we just want to recognize we know there's a lot of people going through difficult times at this time uh, with the coronavirus, etc. And we're we're in no way making light of that. We just want to add a little levity, and we kind of like to play around. It's how John and I interact, anyway. It, it's true, and Ronan doesn't really know a different way to be. So we, you know, we try to we just go we try to, but yeah, we do try to focus on things that are both relevant to people and also take account of the fact that we know people are not nearly as fortunate as we are um, in being able to weather this. But the the thing I wanted to start off with, Elise, is actually sort of in that vein. So. Probably not a lot of people know, but during the time that you were first appointed to the SEC, you were going through some pretty significant health uh, crises. And I'm just curious to know, and, and from my perspective, you handled it with such grace and, and dignity and sort of sense, sense of strength. And it's one of the many reasons I admire you, but how did you do that? I mean, the, the things that people are going through now are obviously different, but... I'm just curious for my own purposes and knowing kind of what that experience was like and how you did it. Well, let me, let me step back and add a little bit to that background. I was confirmed to be an SEC commissioner in June 2008 and was sworn in in early July. And in late August, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. All ovarian cancer is quite significant, but it was, it was fairly serious. And I am looking back on it really grateful for the timing, because if I had gotten my diagnosis prior to being sworn in, I would have withdrawn and let somebody else have the seat. And for me, first of all, it was the job I always wanted. 
and being able to step up and actually get the opportunity to do it was something I was grateful for and something that I think inspired me to really attempt to work through it. And I was a pretty ridiculous working figure uh, at, at the beginning as I sat in my bed surrounded by televisions in the middle of the, the financial crisis and various phones and computers and worked as much as I could the chairman at the time, Chris Cox, said to me that I was working harder than all the rest of my colleagues. I think that was just to make me feel better. But to me, I think what happens when you get a diagnosis of that kind of gravity is you find out what you're made of. And in a sense, it was easier for me because in 1995, I had breast cancer. And when I got that diagnosis, I fully expected to completely fall apart and didn't. Shocking me, I'm sure shocking my husband, and probably the fact that I had my husband, and the particular husband I have is what got me through both of these things, because he is rather a miraculous person, as John can tell you. But I, I think that having something else to focus on, be it getting better, perhaps a, a bit of humor, which is why I think humor is appropriate in times like these, um, is really something that really helps you work it through. And I also have been fortunate, I think, throughout my life to always have a set of friends, and I number John among them, whom I could call in the middle of the night and say, I need you. And they come before they ask why. And that makes you feel that you are that much stronger and that much more able to really get things done. I was also lucky because not quite like today, um, no Zoom then, but there was enough that was available technologically that I was able to participate in everything, even when I didn't have the strength to really go downtown to go to a meeting, because once I got downtown, I would have to take a nap. So I preserved the strength for the times that I needed it and worked through it. And I'd say that most people don't understand their own strength. They consider themselves to be weak in a variety of ways. I still do, but not in that way. I'm pretty much of a pro about beating serious illnesses, but I think people should have faith in themselves and their ability to work through it. And that is true in times like this as well. It sounds like in the circumstance, having the focus of um, the job was really turned out to be a good thing, just in terms of powering through it that fair. That's absolutely right. And ironically, as you know, I went from FINRA to the SEC and I had been at FINRA for over a decade. I had a very strong support system there. So you would think that would have been a better place to be, but I don't think so because the challenge is what made me rise to the occasion. Well, it's, and you look, I mean, we're, we're on Zoom now, so we're all seeing each other, even though this is not going to be um, video. I had to promise Elise that. But you look terrific. Rona, not so much. Um, and I was just going to say that you look great, and your voice actually sounds good for once. There's like deep baritone, less tinniness. What? Are you, are you talking about Elise or me? <laughs> you, you. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't make fun of Elise. But it's funny how, like, you, you seem to have complete lack of respect for anybody you work with. But... Uh, Apparently that's just in this day and age. Yeah. All At right. least you must be special. Besides, besides your CV, yeah. having Ramsey look up to you is something big. Let me ask you, when you called him in the middle of the night and he showed up, did he show up thinking it was a party? 
Probably. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, really nice. good story. That's nice. That's nice. No, but, um, but seriously, in terms of the situations we are going through currently as a country, but also in particular the financial markets, any sense having been in a very responsible position as a federal regulator and also having particularly having been through the experience of the financial crisis as a federal regulator, how do you see the comparisons, the differences between that situation and this one? How do you think the regulators are responding to this one to the extent that you have a view on that? Well, each time we go through one of these, whether it was 9-11 or the financial crisis, um, I'm sure the stock market crash of 1929. Luckily, I wasn't around for that one. I'm not quite that old. Um, we, we learn more. And one of the things I think regulators have done and have learned to do more adroitly and more quickly and more efficiently is to go in the mode without giving up their regulatory hats and trying to figure out how they can help people. And some of that is the obvious, which is, are there things like the date for a filing that relief needs to be given so that people can actually get the filing done on time because they've been distracted by something more important? But more than that, I think regulators understand that although they regulate, they are part of this community and they try to help so that I know at both FINRA and the SEC, people are available to answer questions. People are, are available to ask for relief. I know less about the specifics this time because I'm, I'm more on the sidelines. But for example, if you go back to 9-11, um, when I was at FINRA, and I can't remember if you were there as well then, John. Uh, I can't remember either. I can't remember last week sometimes, but I... I do. Uh, no, I was at the Bond Market Association, actually. Or you had already left. Yeah, there you go. That's okay. not Let's... a very uplifting story, but, but, <laughs> no, um, but no, we, it's not. we divided the firms in four <laughs> among all of the senior staff, and we called them. You know, the old joke is, hello, I'm from, fill in the name of the regulator, I'm here to help you. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. We called people and said, what do you need? What can we help get you? And one of the things that FINRA did is it ran a real estate bulletin board because one of the things that firms in New York most needed in order to be able to serve their clients was a place to operate. Yeah. And people were willing to offer space and we could be a clearinghouse for getting that done. Yeah, I remember, I remember that time. I actually, uh, at the time, I worked for a company called Quest Communications in the telecom world. And I handle a lot of financial accounts and when they were getting places in like Jersey city, et cetera, trying to get them the appropriate circuitry and connectivity. It was kind of amazing to see everybody jump in and like things that took two months were getting done in like four days. It was crazy. And here you see, I think the more obvious examples in this particular instance are not financial regulators like FINRA and like the SEC, although they're doing a lot. But what you see is what's happening, what's happening in government is a little bit akin to what's happening in the industry. You know, mm -hmm. people shifting for manufacturing something else, the manufacturing ventilators, yeah. people not charging for things. Right. And to me, that's incredibly important because I think, I don't want to be a downer, but I think over the last few decades, you, you have seen less and less of the human side of humanity. And 
that's very important. And, the, and as people rally today, whether through individuals or through businesses or through the people who are operating at regulators, the, the human side is coming out. The SEC last Thursday held two meetings of two of its advisory councils, the Investor Advisory Council, as John said, I sit on that one, and the Small Business Advisory Council. They were all organized in about three days, the purpose of which was to get people in to find out what they were hearing from their constituents so that the SEC could get more input in what was giving people difficulties and see what they could do in order to be helpful. So it's in times like this, you see that sort of hat um, coming from the government, from the regulatory system, and it's very welcome. Yes. I, I have noticed that as well, and it is life affirming. It does harken back to my experiences in September 11th, where, um, you know, certainly even in the bond markets, you had people sort of like going out of their way to help people who were, you know, sort of in other circumstances, fierce competitors. Of course, on the other side, people who tend in ordinary circumstances to be less humane, you know, sometimes the, the ugly underbelly comes out as well for people who are inclined to exploit people who are seniors or just um, unsophisticated or whatever. But but I'm, I am reminded and comforted just by my own experiences of people just sort of going out of their way to be kind in sort of simple ways. And I think that's happening today. Um, to, to pick up on something you said, though, in terms of the underbelly, you do see, and this is something that, I mean, whoever's listening to this, please watch out for and please make sure that your mother and your grandmother and your great uncle watch out for. This is a time when scams come out of the woodwork and particularly older people or people who belong to affinity groups, whether it's some sort of lodge or a church group or a synagogue or a subset of the culture are particularly vulnerable to people. And you have to watch out for that because this is a time when people feel generous and that's a very good thing. But you do still have to keep your antenna up for those people who are conducting scams because that part of society comes out too. Right, no question. Do you, one of your other positions, as I mentioned, you are on the board of Occidental Petroleum, um, which gives you a unique position to have a view about the challenges of public companies in the current environment and their reporting obligations, and particularly in the oil industry, God knows. Um, any perspectives that you would care to share about any of that? I think the same sort of principles really apply. You see some cooperation within industries that where you normally do not. And people pull together and try to see what they have to tackle first, last, and always. And I do think that, at least within Oxy, it has an incredibly loyal employee base. Uh, Oxy is a company where, after Hurricane Harvey, the CEO is riding around in her Jeep delivering drywall to help people rebuild. So it, it depends in part on your corporate culture but it is a very, very difficult environment. And, and you're right, particularly people in the oil industry, which is one of those funny industries where people don't get to control the price of their product. It is controlled 
for them and a place where there are other macroeconomic events like what's going on between Saudi Arabia and Russia and OPEC. It is a very, very difficult environment in which to operate, but people put their shoulders to the wheel and from their laptops in their kitchens, they keep going and they do what they can and remembering that they have colleagues and friends and others that who need looking after as well. Yeah. Elise, this topic has sort of been tossed around for a few weeks now and maybe a moot point, but there's been several people calling for a temporary closure of the markets. And then there's been those saying, uh, including us, we don't think it makes a whole ton of sense to close the markets. Have you any thoughts on that or any, anything that you've heard around shutting the markets? You know, we've been through this before, uh, perhaps the most notable example in 1987. I think it's important to keep the markets open. It's easier to do it now than it was back then because of the advances in technology. Uh, But, you know, lots of things are in chaos and a lot of the worries that people have, I mean, rightly so, people are first worried about their health and the health of other people they know and people they don't know. But there are financial woes as well. And even though prices have come down, having an operating pricing system is incredibly important. I think it would be a terrible thing to close the markets unless it was absolutely necessary. And one thing that this latest crisis has shown is that the infrastructure of the market can take it and it truly can operate. Again, and and John's more of an expert than I am, I do think that it's easier in the equity market than in in the fixed income markets. And that's something that for years, I think John and I have tried to work on, and we need some more robustness in terms of how the fixed income markets operate, but they're doing pretty well as well. You're exactly right, Elise. I think even like hats off to our competitors, everybody has handled this very, very well from a, the amount of messaging and throughput that hit these exchanges with the volatility. And as far as I know, no one's had any type of outages. Everyone's handled it well. We're carrying more you know, uh, weight from a compute standpoint than we ever have, frankly, at IX. And thank God for our tech team, both for how they set us up work from home, but how they keep uh, the technology running. Yeah, I would imagine it's, it's, it's similar to 1987, but agreed, e- even after September 11th, it was very problematic in 2001 with technology outages. So I, I think one key solace I take from, from this event is it's, it's been great how people were able to sort of get to their home shelters, work from home. And for the most part, the industry you know, stood by that, which is a good thing. The, the other thing that people sometimes raise during all of these kinds of circumstances, including lately, is short sales. Um, should we ban short sales? Should we limit them? Should we reimpose an uptick rule? you have any thoughts about that? I don't see a compelling need to do any of those things. Yeah. I do think circuit breakers have been very useful and they have come into play here, but I don't think we should do something unless it's necessary. I mean, there's a difference between people being unhappy with the value of what they have invested in the marketplace, and I certainly number myself among those. <laughs> yeah. But that, but that doesn't mean that the marketplace is not doing its job. Now, those what, oxy shares are worth a little less than they used to be, I would imagine. Um, yes, they might be. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it's it, you know the one thing we're seeing even more so, and it would be nice if we lived in a different environment. But I don't think we should artificially control is the volatility. Right. 
And other than these sort of temporary, you know, take a break mechanisms, I don't see a need for those other things. Yeah. Um, one other thing I was going to raise, um, I mentioned SASB, uh, which again is the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Some of the folks who are listening may know about it, others not. You, you just came off of SASB, uh, I understand, at the end of um, the year, but you want to give a general overview of what it is and how you got involved in it? SASB is an, a private sector organization that was set up to adopt standards not mandatory, but standards for disclosure of matters of sometimes called sustainability, sometimes called ESG, uh, environment, social, and governance. I prefer sustainability. It basically is about those matters which will have an impact or may well have a serious impact on the ability of the company to do its business. And they could be risks or they could be opportunities um, but there are things that have not at this moment come into place that they're not reflected in the financial statements. And it's particularly important forward-looking disclosure, as, as you well know, because um, people are investing not for today, but they're investing for tomorrow. And we know that you know past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future performance. <laughs> you heard it here first. So people need to know about what companies know today and what they're doing today about what's going to happen tomorrow. So SASB was literally started in, I don't think it was the garage, but I think it was in the basement of a brilliant woman named Jean Rogers, who is an engineer by training. And it was started in 2011. And I met Jean when she came in to see me at the SEC and she told me about their process. And as she walked out the door, I said to, my legal counsel who helped me with those matters, Leslie Shepard, who's still at the SEC. I said to Leslie, you know, their process is fascinating and I think it seems to be working very well. That's something I think about doing when I left the SEC. And their process is, it's very much open as is governmental rulemaking, but it's not subject to all of the strictures from the Administrative Procedure Act and the Federal Advisory Committee Act and I won't go into those because I don't want to put your audience to sleep, um, that, that slows down the government in promulgating standards. And it's particularly important in this area because things change. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily the case that we would know we would have to be worrying about things. Let's forget about COVID-19, you know, that so many industries would be worried about drought or different issues like that. So what the SASB did fairly miraculously in four to five years was develop industry by industry standards. Some of the issues are affect practically all industries like environmental issues, like COVID-19, which was not foreseen in specific yeah. in the SASB standards. Some are more industry specific. And the idea is here are topics that the SASB staff has concluded after doing lots and lots of research and talking to lots and lots of people in the corporate community and in the investor community and elsewhere, and then putting out for comment, these are issues that may well be material to your company. And it leaves with the management of the company, the ultimate decision as to whether these issues are significant enough to warrant disclosure, but does it, I think, in a very effective way. And SASB managed to put out a set of interim standards 
and then to put them out for comment again and finalize them. And it's now in a process of continuing to work on them. It will be a never ending process. Right. Well, it's a great initiative and it strikes me that it really is driven by a question of what investors today believe they need to know and want to know and what they believe is material because as you know, traditionally, the concept of what's material was always sort of like based on, at least in the view of some people, kind of like, is it going to make a difference to the financial performance in the next quarter or maybe even sort of like the next few quarters? But often people seem like didn't think much beyond that. And um, this is a much longer term focus, which presumably is driven by what investors believe is important. Yes, and it's more important today than it was, because if you go back decades and you looked at the assets of a company, 80% of them were probably tangible and 20% intangible. Now it's flipped. So you look at assets and they're soft assets. And I frankly think that people should have for years been doing a better job of disclosing these types of things in their filings in other communications. But it is starting to gain hold. There's a lot of pressure from the investor community. And eventually, I believe that with or without a regulatory mandate, and SASB isn't pushing for a regulatory mandate at all, but people will join around a single set of standards because all of this disclosure isn't very helpful if you can't compare one potential investment to another potential. Right. right. You mentioned that this was started in um, some woman's basement. It occurred to me, Ronan's running the exchange from his basement pretty much um, at this point. And uh, I don't know how he's managing to do that. His hair looks good. I have to say, since I'm seeing it, but you know, uh, <laughs> the rest of it, I, yeah. don't, I, I can't vouch for. I can touch upon the hair part of it because that's key. I've been using yeah. my own clippers and I, uh, clipping my hair in the shower because a lot of people we talk to on Zoom these days are all complaining about the length of their hair. My wife's complaining about the gray is coming in on her hair. I'm like, I think there's other stuff going on, but uh, John, I thank you. Actually, I need to, actually, uh, people can't see it. Elise's hair looks terrific, but I don't know, uh, but she's obviously not. So- Your hair is looking gray though, John. (laughs) Thank you. What did you do, Ronan? Did you find something online? Like, did you go to a guide for how to cut your own hair? No. You did it in the shower? Yeah, no, I do that just because I can clean it up. No, my dad cut my hair most of my life, so I've sort of seen it done in action. It's a family trait. I do my son's mm-hmm. hair, even even in good times. Uh, sometimes kids just want the sides and the back shaved and not the, the top. So this is a great topic here, actually. You know, we, we, we have a former <laughs> SEC chair uh, for the first time on our podcast, and we're talking about my haircut. Yeah. I appreciate you including well, me, John. Yeah, no, well, I, you know, I just I was trying to bring you back in, Ronan, any way I could think of. I was just trying to, I was trying to drag you back in. I appreciate it, John. That's great. Well, God the, bless the, you. The, God bless you. God bless you, John. Let me, let me ask a, a question of Elise. Uh, this is a random question. I don't, do you ever, do you know the, the band The Cure? Yes. Yeah, do you know that they have a song called Elise? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a great song. So it, Cure is my favorite band of all time. And in, I think it was 1990 or 1991, they have a song, Elise. They didn't release it as a single. But I was going to call my second kid Elise, had my second kid being a daughter. But uh, Jack kind of likes being called Jack and not Elise now. But it's a, it's a great name. And I didn't think of it prior to this call till I saw it written on your Zoom window. But you should, you should look up that song. I will. That's lovely. And we also have something on Spotify, right? An IEX Spotify song list yeah. that Ronan has contributed to. Yeah, I should put, I should put, you know what I'll do? I'll put the Elise song on it afterwards. In so honor that, of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. But a, a, que a question I had, I know we touched upon the fact at the beginning of the call that you became the, the SEC chair and what you went through. But just from a professional standpoint, how did that come about? So you, you were a commissioner and then you were appointed chair and, and how long were you chair for? Um, I ultimately was only chair for four months. It was clear I became chair uh, because Mary Shapiro decided who was our chairman and had been my boss in other places and John's boss as well decided she was leaving the commission. Okay. And the White House did not yet have someone to fill that slot and so they wanted someone to fill it for the interim. At the time that I became chair, we didn't know how long it would be, um, but it was four months. And it's interesting because I never wanted to be the chair because of all the stress that was involved in the job, uh, but it was a fabulous job. Do, do you have a preference for that? Because Mary Jo always wanted to be called the chair, as opposed to Mary always used chairman, and I can't, I'm sort of, it just always seemed, calling somebody the chair is like referring to somebody as an item of furniture. It seemed weird. I, I frankly never cared. I responded to all forms of the title. Mm -hmm. And you know, something very significant your audience should know is that when you stop being, you know, when you become a member of, of a regulatory agency and you're confirmed by the Senate, you become the honorable. And when you step Ooh. down from your job, you get to keep that forever. Oh, that's awesome. So you, oh, you're always honorable after that. Yes. That's I'm going to start awesome. calling John desk going forward. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Ronan. You, he will. He will actually do you, that. You, um, you, you, you're, you're an honorable desk. You complete me, John Ramsey. He, ma he makes work fun. You got to admit, right, Elise? Always oh, did. Uh, you sing yeah. uh, show tunes with him. I need to do that. No, I haven't been doing that. I do, I do like show tunes. I haven't, um, I haven't done it on the podcast yet. Um, but well, but we, you want to hold something back. You want to like keep people anticipating the next one. So uh, it's going to be great. We'll do, next time you can come back. Elise will do a medley from South Pacific or uh, Carousel or a whole bunch of them. Let's that would do be it. Great. Okay, Elise, what's what's your favorite Wall Street movie? We ask everybody that towards the end of the podcast. That's a very good question. I think maybe Wall Street. Is it? It's funny. Almost uh, yeah. Every, every everyone chooses that. I, that would be mine as well. Uh, but the original Wall Boiler Street was room, epic. Although it was frighteningly no. realistic. Which one? Boiler. Boiler Room is John's favorite because he has dreams of of running in and arresting people. I always wanted to. I always wanted to draw a gun and say, "Up against the wall, motherfucker." Uh-oh, now you're going to be censored. <laughs> no, actually. No. Prime Time TV. Oh, this podcast, <laughs> this podcast, as of Ronan, it's labeled for, some, for mature audiences only. I'm cool. fucking proud of you, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time. I think this might be three podcasts, at least, where he's yeah. talked about his fantasy of wearing yeah. his uh, SEC raincoat it and, and it's, sure storming it's, in and kicking very, down doors. Very we didn't much talk about guns when I was on the staff, but we did talk about badges. Yeah. And some people actually got like those flip badges. Oh, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John, do you have a badge you can I don't out? have a badge, but wasn't wasn't the IG at the didn't he have a gun at one point or he was found to have a, a gun, the IG at the commission? I don't remember uh, that. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I made that up in my dream world. 
right. I'll set this up for you one day. We'll, edit we'll do we'll do a we'll do a fake takedown of bad traders. Okay? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun. It really has been fun. And Elise, you are one of my favorite people in the world. And um, and uh, I love you. And I um, thank you for coming on and enduring um, this enduringness and Ronan in particular. <laughs> I was I was nice today. Yeah. I was nice today. I felt bad for you because you have no guests. Yeah. <laughs> Alicia, yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. It was some really great context. My pleasure. And it's it's good to know that John has uh, respectable people that respect him. <laughs> I would not have believed that forty minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both very much. Yep. Have a have a great Thank evening. Thank you. Come back yeah. on anytime. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.